Welcome to Better Leaders, the podcast, where we surface good leadership and smart management in media and beyond. Today, I'm talking to Raju Narissetti, Global Publishing Director at McKinsey. My name is Anita Zilina, and I'm your host. Welcome to Better Leaders. Welcome, Raju Narizetti. I'm so excited uh, that you're here with me today for the podcast. Well, thank you, Anita, for having me. Um, I've been watching all the amazing things you've been doing in your own entrepreneurial journey, so it's great to connect again. Ah, thank you. Well, we'll talk a little bit about entrepreneurial journeys and journeys um, in general today, and maybe that's also a good way to get us started. Um, I bet a few folks in the audience, probably 90% of them, uh, are going to know you because you have an uh, incredible career in media and the digital space. But for the few ones who don't know you, uh, why don't we start by you giving us a little short overview over what's your job now and how did your career path kind of lead you there? Sure. So my current job is I'm the leader of the publishing function at uh, McKinsey and Company, uh, the big consulting firm. Um, McKinsey has been in business uh, content publishing for about 60 years now. It began with the McKinsey Quarterly. And um, it's, a, it's a B2B um, kind of a model, but B2C2B almost uh, in the sense that all of our publishing is uh, free and it's available um, on McKinsey.com. We typically publish, um, I mean, this has not been typical in the last few years because of the pandemic, yeah. but we typically publish about um, between 12 to 1400 articles um, uh, a year. There are about um, more than a dozen active podcasts, uh, a little bit of video, uh, a fairly large um, email um, network. We have about close to 50 emails. You can sign up by topic like banking, or you can sign up. Uh, by a topic like leadership or a topic like how do you manage Gen Z? The idea is that, uh, and historically McKinsey has thought of publishing as if you put out good business ideas that can help people think about their own insights to impact journey as in how can they apply something to their own problem or challenge. That is good for the business of McKinsey. It isn't seen as a lead gen. So there's a bit of a church and state, if you will, um, uh, where I have the ability to kind of look at a proposal or an idea and say, how can we actually really make it more insightful and not worry about the fact that it is trying to sell something? Uh, if actually those who are familiar with McKinsey Publishing know that uh, we don't just talk about ourselves at all, actually. We don't talk about our clients. We don't talk about our service lines and all of that. It's just kind of, here are seven interesting things that are happening in the world of banking kind of publishing. I've been here about four years now. Prior to that, about 30-some years in um, in media. I started off as a summer intern for the Wall Street Journal a long time ago before many of your audience folks were involved, <laughs> perhaps. Um, and then spent the next 15 years there, um, a reporter of various things, the first uh, uh, tech and media editor uh, for the journal, and then uh, became the editor of Wall Street Journal Europe, and then left the journal to go launch a business newspaper in India called Mint, which is still, which is now India's second largest uh, business paper. 
set it up, did that for a while, um, and then came back to the U.S., which has been home for about 35 years now. I originally grew up in India as the managing editor of the Washington Post. The first outside managing editor they hired, and the reason they wanted me was that um, they were looking for somebody who can integrate a newsroom. They had a very separate print and a very mm-hmm. separate operation. So I kind of put it all together. This was the pre-Bezos era. Um, and then went back to the Wall Street Journal, ran digital for a while. And when Rupert Murdoch spun out uh, the old News Corp into Fox and News Corp uh, became a senior vice president of strategy, helped think through a non-media revenue uh, models and did a whole bunch of acquisitions. And then ended up at um, as a CEO of Gizmodo Media Group, which was a group of interesting websites that Univision, a Spanish TV company, was putting together, ranged from The Onion, Jezebel and Root uh, to Gizmodo, um, and did that for just under two years. A lot, The role wrapped up a lot earlier than I thought because Univision changed its mind about focus on English language and went back mm. to focus on its Spanish TV business. Uh, it had to do with the U.S. politics at the time. Trump had just become president, and they felt like... They had to really focus on their business model first. And then I ended up at the Columbia Journalism School where I um, I think you and I actually met there but just before I started yeah. and spoke to uh, one of my cohorts. I ran the Knight Badger Fellowship Program and was the professor of professional practice. And then about four years ago, McKinsey reached out asking if I would consider taking on this role. And so here I am. <laughs> What a career story. And what I, I want to, you know, stay with that for a while, because what I, what I find so truly intriguing about that is that you, you made these kind of, you know, jumps between the editorial side, the business side, the somewhere in between, like that, you know, strategy function that kind of has both the, the, the business aspects as well as the, you know, <laughs> the, the editorial aspects little detour to academia, now also a job that has some kind of elements, like the thought leadership element of like academia in a way. What did you, with that, that journey, how did your leadership, the way you lead, how did that have to evolve or how did that evolve over time? Yeah, Anita, I wish I could say that this was like all part of a ambitious kind of plan and everything has worked out the way it has. It wasn't actually, I, you know, uh, I have an MBA from India. So I think at one level, I was very comfortable with the idea of P&Ls and business. So that kind of made it a little easier. As you know, a lot of journalists uh, tend to be scared of like that aspect <laughs> of it. Uh, so that wasn't the case uh, for me. And, um, and a lot of it was, I think, a willingness to kind of be at interesting intersections of tech and product and all of that. And I used to raise my hand for it. And a lot of times people would be like, I can't believe anybody wants to actually do that because that looks like a recipe for disaster. Because as you know, most of us in journalism grew up in a very church and state world, right? So I, I would volunteer for those roles and ended up kind of being very early in the print to digital transition. And I think that has helped me kind of not think of like any roles as terminal roles, because I think it's like the mm. kiss of death. And honestly, a bunch of these roles that I've mentioned, um, you know, editor of Wall Street Journal Europe, the global deputy managing editor for Wall Street Journal, head of digital, 
managing editor of the Washington Post. All these roles, in a way, are terminal jobs, right? People aspire to get there and then... Yeah, and then never leave, yeah. Right. So uh, a couple of things, and in hindsight, it's a little easier for me to, I think, to say this. Um, One was like, after a while, I ended up like following a fairly simple approach to considering new things, which was answering for myself this question, when is the last time I did something for the first time? And the reason why that mattered was that when somebody would come to me, and most of my jobs have been when somebody has come to me saying, would you be interested in something? Rather than kind of saying, here's a role that I I can totally do, kind of in my sleep, and it's probably, Mm. you know, bigger title, more money or whatever, I've then gravitated towards, because I was answering this question, gravitated towards roles where I felt like, sure, I could do a bunch of things in that job, but there were also lots of things in those roles that I didn't know. And the McKinsey one was, a, is a, again, an example of that, right? I mean, I, I knew that I would bring in a lot of like publishing sensibilities, multimedia, all of those, but I had never done B2B publishing. So there's a very high chance that I could be a disaster in that role, right? So the, what that has done is, um, I mean, it could go two ways, right? You could be frozen by fear, but what it has done is like made me not very complacent when I take these roles. And I think that's a good quality to have. And my leadership, if one can call it that, has evolved uh, mm. because of that approach. This idea that like you should never be happy with status quo. My biggest frustration sometimes as a person and as a leader tends to be how do I balance being a microscope and a telescope? (laughs) By that, I mean, how do I kind of make sure that the day-to-day execution is going well without kind of really being a micromanager or being in the weeds, while also be thinking about long-term issues and not being one of those hands-off absent leaders? Mm. Because you and I have seen plenty of both of these folks. Yeah. And the trick is really to kind of how do you balance that? And it's a struggle. What is your more natural habitat? What is your kind of natural tendency? Is it leaning more towards the big vision strategy future orientation or is it more towards the management excellence in operations? So if I look back and kind of say, what have I been good at? right? Even if it's in my own mind, (laughs) it's a couple of things. One is that I think I've become pretty good at like not only seeing what is around the corner, but being able to prepare for that, either my team or myself and kind of take steps to kind of deal with that. So that, and then most of my roles, last half a dozen roles have been people wanting to change the status quo. And so it's more of a, have been things where these are iconic brands, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Columbia Journalism School, or McKinsey. But they've, for whatever reason, they have felt like we are in a bit of a rut or we are like, hmm. we are not kind of getting to the next level. And so as a result, I think I'm pretty good at seeing the big picture, but then being very focused on executing against it. In the beginning, perhaps you, in a new role in particular, you tend to kind of skew more towards execution, which might surprise people because, you know, this concept of somebody comes in and they have set out this grand vision. I remember when I came to McKinsey, people would ask me, what's what's your vision? I said, publishing at McKinsey cannot have a vision independent of McKinsey because yeah. you're in this, right? So there is, it's not a Raju vision, but I do have ways where we think we can be more mm-hmm. engaging, broaden our global audience, get them to spend more time with us, 
And then how do we connect whatever we're doing in terms of impact to what are McKinsey's needs? Right? So those are all execution stuff. It's not no great vision here. So I think it's just a combination of those two things. And I would say that like most successful leaders tend to be or need to be both of those. My team gets emails from me on this headline. It's kind of not great to kind of what is the next big thing we're doing? And they could get that in the space of, space of a half hour. So, yeah. yeah. And I do, I do think that you're right. When things really go awry and really go bad, what you usually see when someone's at the C-level or, you know, super senior management level is when they either steer totally away from operations and execution excellence or totally away from like looking into the future and kind of strategic vision and not compensate for that steering away by, for example, bringing on a deputy who, right. you know, brings in those other qualities. So, so usually if some, you know, those are the absent leaders you, you talked about or the micromanagers, right? And I mean, that, that risk is real. And I think it's real in the media industry as well. And we've, we've seen it time and again in organizations. Yeah. I mean, if you ask people in my team, I would suspect that they would say that Raju can be short-term impatient with tasks, but he's long-term patient with the results. Mm. I think being able to separate those two is important. And there are days when you over-index to one or the other just because of the nature yeah. of a project or you just haven't thought through it. But if you can get to a like an equilibrium of that, saying that you know execution matters a lot and doing it well, so it's okay to be somewhat more impatient with those and getting those right and not kind of be willing to put up with a lot of repeated mistakes. But then you've got to step back and say, you know, if the direction of travel is right, then it's okay to be patient about the results. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. The other thing that you that you talked about is that kind of idea of something that some people would see as terminal jobs as basically the holy grail of, you know, <laughs> working in publishing and media. And then leaving those jobs, I think there are thousands of people out there who'd be like, oh my God, why would someone do that? Once you have that job, you stick with it, you retire there. That's all great. So, and I kind of can relate with that because I'm also someone who quits right. jobs and I had a lot of like executive recruiters and senior people tell me, wow, you're ruining your career. You're you know, you're, why are you doing that? That's too like volatile. Don't always take stretch assignments, like stay where you are. If you found something that you're good at, that's fine. And I never really could kind of, you know, <laughs> stick with that and be like, well, that's enough for me. I always felt that stretch assignments are great. Now, the, the question that I have for you is, are you and I just weird <laughs> in that way? <laughs> or is, are there more people like that? Is that like a change that's happening in the world? How do you, you talk to so many people and you read so much and publish so much of these like thought leadership, changing ways of work, whatever things. Are people more working with like this assignment mentality with that kind of different path, career path and career journey? I think those of us who have spent, like you and me, who have spent time in media, forget that it's such a, in a way, it's also a very unique industry. Right. And for a long time, it was very stable, fat and happy, if you will, right? Lots of money being spun yeah. out and you know, everything was going great. And then waves of disruption have come and they've never stopped. Right? So I think as an as a, as a industry writ large, I think 
there's been a much more of a terminal roles kind of a thing. There's been dominance of like, if you, for example, if you're going to be in the Washington DC area, Washington Post is the place to be, should, right? At least for a long time. And now, of course, there's lots of other kind of competition. But I also think that it perhaps is the right frame of mind for leadership to have because, I mean, they've always, as again, Anita, you know this, there are also consequences of doing these things, right? Of moving around where maybe you would have been financially way better off if you stuck around and those kind of things. Yeah, my mom, my mom keeps telling me that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a year after I left Wall Street Journal, Rupert came in and bought Dow Jones for like double or whatever the value was. A year after I left the Washington Post, hmm. they sold it to Bezos, right? So there's like, but that's, but I, I don't think if you're jealous of like people with money, it's just, you know, that's the easiest thing to be jealous of, right? Um, you should be jealous of things that you can't have because money, I think you can make at some point. But I also think that we forget that the average tenure of a CEO in the S&P 500, right? Uh, in four, is like less than 10 years. Yeah. And the average CEO tenure is like 4.9 years, right? So if you look at it that way, you could say, wait, like, you know, why are you in this job for seven years? Look, like yeah. you are the anomaly, right? So, so I think that's, it's good for that. I also like increasingly, and maybe you get to a point where you can afford to say it, but I've also thought of my career as more of a, honestly, a portfolio to curate rather than something to keep climbing. The example I tend to increasingly embrace is like, you know, when you go to a playground, there's lots of like different things. And one of the things that in most playgrounds is this seesaw, right? And usually when you go to a seesaw, it first of all needs somebody else, means that you, you can't succeed on your own, you need a team. And two, you usually spend about like, you go down, the other person goes up and whatever you do for a few minutes, and then you're actually ready to go some to play with something else. So I've seen, of, I've seen my career as more of that rather than a ladder, um, because ladders by definition implies that you will only get ahead if the person above you falls off or you jump over them, right? Yeah, it seems like a it's well conventional wisdom. It seems like a strange way to think about like your own progress. So I've like deliberately curated like a career where I feel, look I'm I'm 57, and I feel like because of all the things that I've voluntarily done for the next 15 20 years, I'm in a position of like really be able to bring a lot to bear rather than if I had spent like. 20 years at like one place. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see that there is now, when you look at very young generations, right, that has become maybe for different reasons, but that this is becoming the norm of like not attaching yourself to a company or a role just because, you know, that is the way you do it <laughs> for 10 or 20 years. I, I just find it fascinating to see the pace of change when, you know, Gen Z or younger millennials kind of have that routine of like, well, this is an assignment and I'm doing it. And then I'm off to the next assignment. And I, sometimes it, it also, I'm, you know, I see what conflicts it potentially creates because I sometimes feel organizations or senior leaders who come from like a different mindset see it as an insult. Just like, why are you leaving us? You just kind of came, right? Yeah. And I also think that the big difference between, let's say, the last 10 years or 15 years to 20 years ago was that all of the 
intermediaries that you needed to succeed, right? If you're a great voice and you're interested in audio, you needed the radio station, right? If you're a good writer, you needed a like a platform. But increasingly, I think there's, because of technology and all the changes, your ability to engage people directly, yeah. be much more entrepreneurial, right? In your own content creation. I think that is helping people make the case that, sure, I need, I need an organization, but I need to learn some things but I don't need to be there for either I go to a different organization or I can try some things as well. So I think in that sense, um, I think that's the direction of travel yeah. Uh, yeah. for sure. Again, um, I, I mean, just like anybody else, I would take it very personally. If somebody in my team came and told me that they were, you know, when I was at the journal that they were going to the FT or the New York yeah. times, I really take it personally. Uh, but over time I've come to realize that if you are a good leader, you ought to actually measure yourself in where have people who have worked with me for me gone and what are they doing? And sure, I can't sit here and take credit for a Melissa Bell at Vox or Ezra Klein or Julia Beiser at Bloomberg or Amanda Zamora, but they were all working for and with me when they were starting out. Right. Yeah. I hope that some of the things we did together is what allowed them to go on. And I take huge pride now in saying that, you know, there was a time when they were young and new and we worked together. So I think then you feel greatly satisfied. And then yeah. the idea of someone jumping ship doesn't bother you as much. Yeah. Yeah. I like that perspective. And I do feel that's also a perspective that I feel very strongly about why, why I have a passion for education and you, I know you do ha have that as well, because I do feel that's also something you're triggering something in someone, a thought, a new, a feeling, a new perspective, a newfound self-confidence when you right. kind of work with people in a coaching or mentoring or education setting. And ideally at some point you look back and say, well, you know, this person went on to do amazing things and change the world and well, you know, that's not, <laughs> not on me, you know, I might have played a tiny, tiny little role with some of the concepts. That's what I always yeah. find so rewarding about people. And you know. I mean, for me is a great example in India because with the first paper that uh, was a integrated newsroom where we launched the website before we launched the paper and did a lot of things very differently. But the thing that gives me great joy is that the number of people who work there, who have gone on to other things, who tell me that like those were the best years of their like journalism career and so much of what they've learned they learned because of the time they were there and that's way more satisfying than if they all stuck around at mint mm. right so just that i think you uh, i don't know if it's self-actualization or as you get older you realize that yeah. how to measure impact is very different and i think that's good leaders i think grasp that but there's a it also imposes a other responsibility right one of the things i've done very consciously, and I do it in every job that I have taken on, is to very early, very quickly think and do something about succession. Hmm. Not that I'm leaving or I'm going to be a short timer, but I think we all owe it to the organizations that we work at, that if and when we leave, that we have left it in a better place. And almost every time I've done this, the organization has not had to look outside to replace me, which I take it as a sign of like, you know, relative health. And so I think that's another thing that you learn over time that you shouldn't fear having very clear succession planning. I mean, I've been here four years, but from the very beginning, 
my my deputy Lucia has proven to be the kind of person that if something happens to me that she could jump in and sure about for two months people will miss me and then they will say you know things are actually maybe better right so I think that's again a lesson that you learn uh, when you move around because mm-hmm. if you think of it as a terminal job you're going to fight any idea that somebody could like replace you yeah what are some things that you learned about your own leadership style your own management style the way you work with people that you learned the hard way Think some things that did not work in the beginning some things where you now know oh gosh when i did that i wish i'd known <laughs> how to how to do it better what are some failures oh pl- plenty of them right i mean both successes and failures and i can talk about my time at the washington post which was a very challenging time because financially it was a you know very difficult period for the post my biggest success is i think to create the foundation for like what has come to be the washington post in terms of print and digital the hiring we did and i mentioned a, a bunch of names that we did uh, as a client or melissa bell or all the people that you know yeah. well um i think that was like the ability to kind of take two very separate organizations put them together and create a foundation for the post for the next decade i think is is a lasting thing even though to all uh, in all battles the victories go to people who are running the place which is as it should be yeah. subsequent re- regimes there have like benefited from it but the fundamental core was things that we changed um, back in 2009 and 10 but the post was also like my tenure there was also um, home to my biggest failure which is i failed to convince the leadership of the post that in order to be sustainable that we needed a paywall mm. tried every single time for three years completely mm-hmm. failed to the point where one leader uh, told me that it's only going to happen over my dead body <laughs> it, like a year and a half after i left sold to Bezos and all sorts of paywalls right but <laughs> the failure is as much on me in in not being able to show them the way in kind of becoming very vested in that idea and not being able to find creative ways to build that transition mm-hmm. some of the pushback came from a very good place a fundamental belief that the washington post has a role to play in the dc community yeah and that meant like anything to do with the paywall hurts that rather than coming up with solutions i think i pushed a lot on like all or nothing saying we have to have a paywall that's it end of story and failed and i left eventually because of that and when you look back i think you you do uh, learn a bunch of things and if fundamentally i'm and you've known me for a while i can be pretty um, straightforward and as a result can come off as like relatively blunt and i think the thing that i've learned over time um and not sure i practice every day but it's a lot harder to be kind than be clever yeah i think there's a tendency to kind of want to show you know how to do this yeah your your idea is so good that you don't need to like bring people along and when i've done 360s one of the things i have gotten back over the years is that i think we know where he is trying to take us but it'd be nice if he kind of explains that a bit right mm. meaning that because my belief is that you everybody doesn't need to be in the same place to move forward collectively yeah 
that's a good belief, right? Then you're fast and you don't wait for all 100% of the people to get it. But there have been times when I've been so far ahead of the team that even my the core believers are like, wait, what is happening here, right? Yeah. There's great tension and confusion, especially in an industry that's struggling. So it's the, I've learned that the hard way that just because you can see around the corner and know what to do doesn't mean that you don't have to explain it to people. Yeah. Right? And good leadership is in like bringing, if not everybody, some people along, right? Oh, absolutely. So I think it's kind of you, you learn that those battles are not being won by having, you know, having the stronger arguments is just like one tiny tiny piece of the stakeholder management and negotiation process, right? And I think it's a I think it's a learning that probably many leaders share at some point that there is so much more to shifting an organization and shifting the belief system of a leadership team. It's not just about, but I have it on paper. It's the right thing to do, right? And there's an inherent tension, right? Which is that and I year four into McKinsey, I think I'm still dealing with that, which is if you're brought in as a transformation change agent and you're succeeding, how do you retain that outsider in perspective year three, year four into that role, right? How yeah. do you not become the problem or how do you not become what it was? How do you kind of stay, have that perspective? And in my case, sometimes it means very actively resisting using kind of the lingo of a place and all of that, because I'm like, <laughs> if a place is like full of PowerPoints, I'm like, I don't do PowerPoints, right? But it comes at a cost because the reason why a place does PowerPoints is because there's a culture of the organization and they get it, right? I would yeah. faster. So if you're fighting it for the sake of fighting it, then you actually suffer. So where do you kind of, how do you retain that outsider in perspective, be able to kind of say that this was great, but why are we doing it this way? And so it's a, it's tough and I don't claim to succeed all the time. In fact, like sometimes you stumble and you realize that it's everybody actually likes your idea. It's just the way you're like selling it is alien to them because you're yeah. coming off as an outsider rather than kind of doing it the way they do. And then the other, I think the other issue is that how do you reconcile um, wanting to bring everybody along and wanting to um, kind of, speak to the culture and language of the place while still kind of really believing that success comes from, I mean, success comes from creating meaningful differences and not better sameness. I think oftentimes when you succeed, you just start replicating it, right? So I tend to kind of push a lot on saying that, okay, last year we did this amazing, we talked to like 50 leaders around the world, did ask them for their great book recommendations and we created an amazing package. What are we doing different next year? Right? Yeah. Um, how do you then create like, you know, meaningful differences every time and not better sameness? And it's hard to marry that with like getting to be part of the place. Totally. Totally. So your assessment of uh, the conversation and development of leadership and the concept of leadership in the media space. Are we, are we seeing progress? How we talk about, how we discuss, how we foster, how we nourish, how we diversify leadership in media? Or are we still basically 
in the 20th century? And is the media industry still a place that does not truly appreciate building and fostering and empowering their leaders with a more diverse and creative lens? Yeah, just to narrow the conversation because, you know, television is not my area. So let's say news writ large, digital or print or all of that. I think there's a clear emergence of like a barbell where you're starting to see the New York Times of the world, maybe the FT, a little bit the journal, really kind of pull away in a very meaningful, visible way in not just the commercial success, but in the fundamental practices and thinking of themselves as a product company and all of that, yeah. right? There's a lot happening there in a good way. And it gives me great hope that if they can do it, maybe others can do it too. And then at the other end of the barbell, you are seeing the emergence of like some really creative, innovative approaches to rethinking media, leadership, how to run organizations. And an example would be somebody you and I know very well, um, the Mitra Kalita and ULL Media. and Yeah. A real solving for a real problem, which is community journalism is like disappearing, right? Solving for the idea of like a news site shouldn't be just about information. It can also be news you can use and be very useful, right? In a community, that's how you should think about it. Being, and this is a pet peeve of mine, not automatically saying it has to be nonprofit, which seems to be unfortunately a big thing in the US. And making sure that your growth is like profitable. Yeah. And you're seeing a lot of examples of that. They're small in terms of the like where they are, not making the kind of collective massive impact that you'd hope they would make. The problem is the middle. And the middle is big and very impactful and causing all sorts of challenges for democracies and societies. And I think the middle hasn't really changed. Mm. So it's a, and I think some of that stems from just hubris and just bad decision making in some cases, but too late. It, yeah. Some of it's a function of ownership. But I do fundamentally think that an industry that has grown up in what I still believe in, which is church and state, I think those are important. I don't think realize that over the last 40, 50, 60 years has morphed into a church versus state. That these are not like things that need to, they're separate, but they work together, but they are separate and they need to be in competition. You know, you know the number of newsrooms where yeah. people in revenue are not even allowed to be near the newsroom, right? Yeah. Still. Still. I think that has been the bane of our industry's challenges because all of our problems have been at intersections of these things. And we have not we are not set up as an industry to solve for that. And I'm not even getting into Anita things that you and I care about and talk about, which is around diversity and like all of those issues, right? Those are like just chronic and not still being not solved, right? But I'm talking about just fundamental core business practices, a long way to go, right? So there is hope at both ends of this and despair in the middle. And the other thing you're seeing, and I'm just talking about the US now, but if when you step back and extrapolate this to what is happening to media ecosystems in, I don't know, Hungary, Turkey, India, other places, there are whole sets of different challenges coming about, which worries you a lot about like just the future of democratic societies and all of that. Right. And that's a whole macro level challenge. Absolutely. 
And let's talk a little bit about the diversity angle still, because one thing that I that I find particularly striking in a bad way is that once the first kind of day of crisis hit us, and I mean, we've been in multi-crisis for a few years now, from the pandemic to economic crisis to, you know, political uh, scenarios, all the initial nice words about creating all these new roles and creating equitable workspaces and promoting women and folks of color into chief diversity officer roles is poof, <laughs> disappeared in the first second that, you know, business gets riskier. And I don't think we talk about that quite often yeah. and transparent enough. I mean, I'm seeing as, you know, this is the season uh, and mercifully it's, it's happening more broadly of like organizations putting out their annual diversity stuff that the Washington Post just did. Yeah. Today. So at least there is data for us to be able to engage with it, right? In, in some companies are doing that more often. I must say that I think a large part of the failure has also been on us in the sense that we have made diversity for a very long time, for too long, a model imperative. We have not as successfully made it a business imperative. Yeah. Uh, as a result, in tough times, moral nice-to-have imperatives can naturally be seen as like expendable. While it was a business case, I think we would have had much stronger grounds. And the business case is both like you can't serve communities or, or cities or whatever your universe is unless you look like what your audience looks like, right? So there is just that basic business case. But I think we also struggle to show the correlation between diversity, even youthfulness, actually, to the skill sets that are much needed going 10 years from now, mm. right? As a result, I think the middle, which is where things you know, succeed or fail, is still being populated by people who are not digital natives, for example. Yeah. And that's, sure, you, know, you could put somebody who's been in charge of digital for a few years, but the fund of 20, 30 years of not being a digital native means that their ways of thinking about it are very different. And organizations that are succeeding, and there's a correlation to all these things, by the way. And I must say that part of the reason I think the New York Times is so successful increasingly or visibly is that when you put the top leadership, right, author, uh, Salzburg, in the hands of people who are 30s to 40s, whether you like it or not, their horizon is 20 years out. Are you sure? Yeah. They have all the pressures of like needing to meet the quarterly and all that. But just the mindset. This was part of my challenge at the Post as well, a set of the leadership at that time was like X years away from retirement. So they would never do anything that would like cost a lot of money, like a paywall, hit a lot of short-term things, but really pay off maybe 10 years out. Yeah. Right? They're long gone. As a result, I think we've focused a lot on editors and managers to kind of make the change. But I'm not sure we've spent a lot of time talking to boards and talking to the investors, particularly foundations. Right? I'm like, what are the preconditions you're making? Sure, if you make a precondition that you have to report out your diversity as a precondition, good. But that's, I mean, that doesn't help if the diversity report says that things are not going well, right? Similarly, I worry now about our industry. Look, I'm not going to get into the argument of whether 
tech companies should pay for generative AI and for search issues and all that. I think the the value exchange has been unequal enough that maybe there is mm. a, a compensation issue. And some, as you know, Australia, Canada recently, you know, yeah. are moving forward on that. But what really bothers me is neither the regulators nor the government nor the industry is saying, okay, if you're going to get like a subsidy or like whatever the amount is, how are you going to spend the money? Yeah. I would rather have like regulators say, we're going to force this issue, right? You settle it, whatever, right? Make sure you get some compensation. But by the way, we're going to also insist that here are four or five things where the money should be deployed. Yes. Diversity could be one of them, right? Having some oversight board version of it for a news organization, right? Bringing back an ombudsman. All of those can be preconditions to getting free money, if you will. Yes. So I think this is where I I worry that like uh, both our industry and people thinking about industry are not like thinking long term and not kind of using the right levers. Yeah. Yeah. I Zoom, think right? organizations are, are led and people are led in organizations are led and driven by incentive systems and by business, um, you know, numbers and decisions and if you don't tie those perceived optional touchy-feely subjects, which they aren't, but sometimes they are pushed in that that realm, if you don't tie them to business metrics, um, they are perceived as optional. So I totally agree. And even in the nonprofit world, I mean, all these, the good news is that I think a lot of foundations, a lot of wealthy people have now realized that they have to support news. In the past, they yeah. would stay away from it. But even there, you look at their boards. You look at who are the decision makers, right? I think there's a lot of token diversity, but and there's good diversity in terms of when it comes to race, perhaps, and even gender. But where I utterly fail to see diversity is where are the digital skill sets at, on your board? Yeah. Where are your funding officers with like actually having delivered results, right? So they're still going to, oftentimes, I'm not being an ageist, I am old that way, to people in their 50s and 60s even now. And when you look at their track record, sure, amazing editor, won Pulitzer Prizes, but why are you on the board of a nonprofit that is thinking about the future of journalism when the problem is not on the newsroom side? Yeah. And who's holding these foundations and others accountable for the decisions they're making on these boards? Yeah. Good questions to ask. We're nearly at the end of this fantastic conversation. So I'd love to end with a reflective, on a reflective note and ask you if you could now talk to young Raju at the very early, you know, start of your career, what is some advice that you'd give your younger self about life, about career, about the combination of those two? Yeah, I mean, sh shockingly, I would like not change a lot in terms of what I've done um, because I think I feel like pretty good about like all the things I've learned sometimes the hard way but there are a couple of things one is that I think I have never well after something I've never looked back and said I should have gone slower no matter how fast you think you're moving and you're thinking oh my god this is causing chaos you look back and you could have moved faster so I think forcing yourself to say that if I think I'm moving faster and it's causing problems actually, I would move faster rather than slower. Hmm. It's something that, because our industry, I think in particular, tends to um, be very slow, as you know. 
and have lots of reasons why they should be that way. Right. And then the second thing, and again, I go back to this, uh, just, a you know, this something I've said before, which is like, just remembering that end of the day, managing people is a huge privilege. Most in our industry, again, it's just, it comes accidentally. You're a reporter. The only way to go up is to become an editor. And then suddenly you have people and you have, you're like, it's almost a little bit of a nuisance in the beginning. Like, why do I have to deal with all these people? I love my writing and editing. But end of the day, one has to acknowledge that that is your job. And I'll end with an anecdote. When I joined, uh, so I'm a, I'm a big list maker. I have like a little book work <laughs> list that I write still do. When I joined the Gizmodo Media Group as CEO, the first few months, I would like come in every day, have a list. And by the end of the day, I would have not like literally struck anything off that list. And I was getting really, really anxious and frustrated saying, I'm, I'm really failing. And I talked to somebody about this and they said, why are you not able to do it? I said, look, I have an open door policy, right? And all day people come in, there's some people issue that I'm dealing with. And the end of the day, I've dealt with a lot of people issues, but I've not done anything that I set out to do. And the epiphany was that this person telling me, Raju, as CEO, that is your job. Anything else on your list? If you get around to it, great. But your job is not scratching that list. Your job is to being available to manage the people issues that, you know, that come up. Come. And that really changed my perspective. I still make lists and I still fret about like <laughs> not getting around to it. These days I make the list because I'm forgetful. But, <laughs> um, but I think so this idea that managing people is a real privilege and that's what matters. I think it's a good way to kind of look back mm-hmm. and tell yourself when you're very young and when maybe you are not the best manager out yeah. there. What a wonderful piece of advice. And thank you so much, Raju, for taking the time for this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me and um, look forward to seeing you one of these days. This was today's episode of Better Leaders. If you enjoyed it, please do follow us and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Missing Link.